Esmond and I are going to be married. To each other? Of course to each other. Who else to? Well, I don't know about you, Gus. I always sort of figured Lorelei would end up with the Secretary of the Treasury. My little angel, you don't even know there's a certain kind of girl would take advantage of a situation of this sort. Well, may, I, uh, may I kiss your hand? I always say a kiss on the hand feels very good, but a diamond tiara lasts forever. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. I'm Samantha Ellis. And it is here. Our big road to 100 has come to an end with our 100th episode. Yay! Yay! Technically, it's not technically the 100th, but we had some bonus episodes and some... We're calling it 100. That's where we are. It Uh, sounds better. (laughs) Exactly. And we are going to the movie that started it all, the movie that gives us our title, the movie that opens our intro every week. We're talking about 1953's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and we have a very special guest, one of the specialist guests I think we've had on this podcast. Don't tell Eddie Muller that. We have TCM's Alicia Malone. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be on your 100th episode because I know it's been a, a long road for you guys. You've been counting things down. So congratulations on getting here. Thanks for being our fancy, exciting guest. <laughs> so fancy. Exactly. As When we decided that we were going to do our, our 100th episode, we said, you know, Sam, I think, was the one that came up with, with Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and Alicia, because Alicia famously introduced this at last year. It was last year's, right? Time has no meaning anymore these right? days. Right? Last year's TCM Classic Film Festival, and she had one of the best intros. You can actually listen to it on <laughs> our Patreon on our TCM audio that I record. But Alicia, can you talk about coming up with the, the intro last year for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? And is it weird to you that it's become kind of like a thing that if you were there, people remember it? Oh, I didn't even know that. And now I feel kind of embarrassed because I feel like that intro destroyed any notion that people might have that I am a cool person because I was just so excited to talk about this film and to get to introduce it at the Classic Film Festival because this movie was so pivotal in my life and has been a really important movie in terms of my love and obsession with classic film. So I wanted to do something special and I was trying to think of what I could do and I kept coming back to this idea of doing my own version of Two Little Girls from Little Rock but sort of putting my own spin on it and I knew I can't sing so I wasn't going to subject the audience to that but I thought maybe I can make my own little uh you know poem about how I came to love this film and I kept going no that's dorky don't do that and I think I even mentioned to Ben Mankiewicz and he was like you don't have to do anything like that just you know speak about the film that's uh, you don't have to I'm like I I want to put in the effort and so I just remember thinking to myself before I went out there to introduce the film with the Egyptian, I was like, all right, if we're going to do it, we're just going to go for it. We're just going to have fun with it. And hopefully the audience will enjoy, you know, my passion and enthusiasm for the film and, and help get excited to watch the movie on the big screen. So I'm glad to hear that people appreciate it or at least remember it. <laughs> 
Honestly, this is one of the huge turning points in cinema for me. Like, I would go as far as to say Gentlemen Prefer Blondes was the first classic movie I watched that made me have that aha moment. Like, wow, these movies are really great. So when both Kristen and I were actually in attendance for that intro, and as soon as we saw it, I think we both kind of were like, well, if we're going to discuss Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, I think we know who we have to have for this episode. Absolutely. I mean, I came to this film when I was really young. You know, I I watched a lot of classic films when I was young because my family is all big into classic films. And my dad would record all of these movies from late night television. And we would have these precarious stacks of VHS tapes in our living room that me and my two older sisters would comb through to try to find a favorite. And I remember seeing this film and just falling in love with it from the, the very opening moment when the curtain gets pulled open and you see Lorelai Lee and Dorothy Shaw, Jane Russell, Marilyn Monroe in these low-cut red sequin dresses. And I just was transfixed by the colours, you know, the cinematography by Harry J. Wilde, the choreography by Jack Cole, the music by Hoagy Carmichael and Julie Stein, and, of course, the female friendship that's portrayed between Lorelai Lee and Dorothy Shaw. And from there... I was off to the races. I was obsessed with particularly the golden age of Hollywood and Marilyn Monroe. For people who don't know the plot of this movie, I'll give a a brief rundown. As as Alicia already mentioned, it tells the story of Lorelai Lee, played by Marilyn Monroe, and Dorothy Shaw, played by Jane Russell, who are American showgirls traveling to Paris. Lorelai is trying to get a guy to finally marry her, who is being controlled by his dad. Dorothy's just there for the fun. They end up on a boat, and along the way, love blossoms, but not as deeply as the love between these two women for each other. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from this movie is their friendship. I know, Alicia, when you've done the intro to this, even I think as recently as the last time this aired on TCM, the discussion is about how Lorelai Lee and Dorothy are really unlike any other female characters, especially at this time in the 1950s when women were perceived as more homemakers and other women were more competition for them. You know, you see a real unifying love and respect and friendship between them, even when they're in situations that you would think would tear them apart. Can you talk about why this friendship, I think, seems so different than other even something like the women, you know, where they're not really friends, they're just kind of a group of women that all kind of tolerate each other. That's right. Yeah. The women is a remarkable achievement in terms of having so many female cast members on screen at once. But when you look at the film like that, it's hardly a feminist movie because they're all tearing each other apart. And it's very much about competition and snide comments towards each other. And I think that was very much the case during the 1950s, particularly with someone like a Marilyn Monroe figure, this sex symbol. She was sort of seen with a side eye that she would come and steal your man. And so often she was the the competition for other women. And it wasn't this equal partnership that we see in Gentlemen Fur Blondes. I love these two because Dorothy Shaw and Lorelai Lee are almost complete opposites to each other. They have different intentions. They have different 
styles of talking, of dressing, of moving, but they fit together so well and they support each other no matter what. Even if they're making fun of each other, um, laughing at each other, they still always come together. And that is present throughout the entire film and very much on purpose. You know, when Jane Russell was borrowed from RKO to come to 20th Century Fox to make this film, one of the things that Daryl Zanuck, the head of Fox, the um, Charles Letterer, the screenwriter, producer Sol Siegel and director Howard Hawks really wanted to do was to make sure that Dorothy's role was uh, complete and, and full, like the role of Lorelai Lee in the Broadway musical and the play and the movie and Anita Luz's book. And one of the things that they wanted was firstly a love story for Dorothy and secondly to make sure that that female friendship really made sense that you could tell that Dorothy had genuine affection for Lorelai even when she was getting them in trouble so that you know by the end of the film when she sticks up for Lorelai Dorothy that you you know that it's done with uh, a true intent that she really does believe and support Lorelai and, you know, these are two girls just trying to make it in a man's world. And I think that's something you also see in this film, just the the way that women need to survive and the, the means in which they choose to do that. It's amazing to watch this because, especially if you know the personas of each of these actresses off screen, I think that's also really telling. You know, we all we all love Marilyn on this podcast and we know about kind of the bum rap that she got as an actress at, in the studio. And I appreciate so much about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, the fact that she's daffy, but she's not stupid. You know, so her relationship with with Gus, the Tommy Noonan character, is definitely one of two people that are kind of lovesick for each other and and high on love in an equal way. Even though she definitely has an agenda, she explains it. It's not malicious in a sense that you can at least, you know, respect it and appreciate it. And you're like, oh, she's not some she's not the gold digger that the dad thinks that she is, which I think is, it's unlike a lot of any of the other roles that she got to play where it was a lot of times, as good as those movies are, making fun of how quote unquote stupid she was. And I appreciate that that's not the case here. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a it's a layered performance. It's a satirical performance. Marilyn Monroe is very much in on the joke. And I think that was what really intrigued me from the beginning about Marilyn was with this film in particular, you could tell that there's something else going on. You, even at a young age, I could have the sense that Marilyn Monroe itself was a performance, a performance of female sexuality, and that that wasn't who she really was, that everything was a creation from her name to her hair, the way she walked and her whispered voice. And then on top of that, the way that she's portraying Lorelai Lee, it really is with a wink. She knows exactly what she's doing. And Lorelai Lee herself, like you said, is actually quite smart. I mean, she's just trying to get by in this world. And as she explains to Gus's father, if a man can marry a woman because she's pretty, why can't a woman marry a man because he has money? You know, she is using a man just like men use her. She knows that she gets male attention because of her looks. So she may as well 
be out for herself and make sure that she can look after herself and not end up back on the wrong side of the tracks in Little Rock. She's an amazing blend of mercenary and cognizant of that, but not cold-hearted in the least. And I love that her intelligence and shrewdness come across in the smallest ways. She gives the fight like a thesis statement to the father at the end, right? That sort of summarizes everything she's doing. But my favorite little moment that where you infer Lorelai's mode is when she's talking to the Mater D who's been getting money from all of these gentlemen who want to be seated at the table and she comes with her wide-eyed look and just talk, well tells them the story of how this other thing that she was on people actually paid money to sit at her table but he lost that money because I just decided to eat in my room and she manipulates this whole situation without feeling manipulative at all and also it's this movie is fascinating well in many ways but just looking at it through a patriarchal viewpoint of how these women are gaming a system that games them constantly it's so beautifully done i mean she has zero power this mater d is making money off of her appeal that she gets nothing from it except for a table of men who are going to ogle her and mm-hmm. so to take that power back in the smallest way is what i think these two women are doing constantly and how they respect that in each other is kind of in the foundation of this beautiful friendship we see. I'm more impressed every time I see this with how thoughtfully they are going through life, utilizing their skills and still having big open hearts because that's yeah. a, it's a huge thing. This would be an easy movie to have turned very dark and have almost all of the same plot points, but They're just the goodwill coming off of them because they're inherently good people is is what elevates it. But it it does. It has that just very true recognition of how the world works and the role of beautiful women in that world, whether they want that role or not. Exactly. And, you know, in the 1950s, you know, one way that a woman could get out of her situation was to get married. I mean, that was pretty much your only option. You couldn't really go to work or necessarily make your own money, your own wealth. So you really had to rely on men. And so for them, like you said, gaming the system and being quite shrewd. You've got Lorelai, who is out for men with money and she loves diamonds. And then you have Dorothy, who is really just looking for love. You know, ain't there anyone here for love? But I love the way that Dorothy is almost quite masculine in her sexuality, the way that she growls, you know, when she's singing that song, she wants a big hunk of a man, you know, and she's always the one that's looking at the men. You know, they're looking back at her, but she objects the men just as much. She's like, who's he? He's dark and handsome, you know. He, she's always looking for a man to satisfy her sexually. I mean, I think it's quite remarkable to see a woman with this much sexual agency in the 1950s. I think it's really funny because uh, whenever I watch this movie, I always mentally make the comparison because my sister is like the Dorothy to my Lorelei, but the views on love are like totally switched. I'm like the Marilyn as far as personality goes, but I'm also the ain't there anyone here for love kind of person. So I think it's so interesting when you watch this film. I always say when I'm watching a film, if the characters that I'm seeing on screen remind me of people I know in real life, that's how I know that they're really well drawn out. That's like one of the signs of a good film to me. So I actually took my sister to see this at the fest last year too. 
In addition to that, I think the duality of this and even the complexity of this film is so interesting because we can really dive deep and analyze all of the um, female characters, all the relationships. But on the surface, we can also really watch this as just really fantastic entertainment, too. Mm. Like there's the color, there's the glitz, the glam, the amazing costumes and how pretty their makeup is. And it's just a really good feel good movie on top of being so profound for its time as far as female liberation goes. And I think that's really fantastic to point out, too. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's why it's a film that we come back to time and time again. It's a film that, you know, I've, I've watched, I think, twice this year because we all need a bit of a feel good film this year. I love that it has so many dimensions to it. You can just watch, like you said, you can just watch this as a piece of entertainment. It's a glorious fantasy. You know, it's got this beautiful, elegant cruise ride. The costumes by William Trevia is just unbelievable to look at. It's so sparkly. I love the way that when you look at their costuming, Dorothy and Lorelai just stand out from everyone else with their bright colors. Uh, There's so many different outfits. Uh, The songs are catchy and the dances are great. And so it's a film that is wildly entertaining as well as being an interesting piece of commentary. I think it's really interesting whenever I watch this film and I see directed by Howard Hawks, it always just comes as a little bit of a shock to me because I'm used to seeing bringing a baby and only angels have wings and stuff like that. I'm like, he really directed this? It's just such a a change compared to his other work. But he also had such a knack of bringing out his actresses, really bringing them out of their shell and making them look incredible on screen, whether that be physically or just bringing out their talent and their magnetism. And I feel like he really does that here especially too. Yeah, and it was amazing that the performance by Marilyn Monroe is as good as it is, considering she had a lot of struggles with Howard Hawks and Howard Hawks didn't have a lot of patience for her being a, a poor little girl, he would call her, because she was so nervous and she wouldn't want to come out of her trailer and she would be late and she would look to her acting coach for direction rather than Howard Hawks. She wouldn't really understand what he was saying to her. And that's where Jane Russell came in and was really a a great support for her on this film. You know, a lot of the publicists at the time were saying that it was going to be a, a great feud between Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe because that's how they always played up, you know, whenever you had these two powerhouse actresses in a film, well, they must be feuding because, again, they're in competition with each other. Hollywood is a very patriarchal society. It's uh, her or it's me, so they had to be at loggerheads. But really, they were just supportive. And Jane Russell really coached Marilyn Monroe through some of her difficult moments. And you can't see that when you watch the film and, and you can't see that Howard Hawks didn't really like Marilyn as a person, although he respected how much she came alive when the camera was on her. I think there's another, it came to mind when you were talking about the female friendships in this and how they're seen. And I do think you can't necessarily see on screen what Jane was doing for Marilyn behind the scenes, but the camaraderie and how you build that, that's very difficult to manufacture on a set for something quick for, for women who have been pitted against each other and are in an industry where they watch themselves pitted. So I think it is always helpful. It's like the directors that take the time to have the whole cast live together in a chateau for a month, whatever. But the other way that female 
relationships in this film come across and why it adds to this general lack of cynicism is it's it's permeates to all of them like lady beekman is not a character of she's also not an obstacle or a bad guy um lorelei's not trying to pull something over on her she just really admires her tiara and then the other women that you see other female passengers in it like even the very beginning when they're doing their scene about to leave and they invite the entire because of course the entire olympic team is there (laughs) and it's only men you know they're all there they're having a party there's also a few women in that mix and they get to sing a little bit as well and so there's a lack of competitiveness in all of the female characters and even lady beekman is mollified pretty quickly when meeting lorelei and i think all of those things that howard hawks knowingly or not it it could maybe that was his manipulation of oh i'm gonna do this twist on how women are but i think because it's at every layer in this it it enhances it as a whole and then speaking of the costumes because i could just do our entire thing talking about the wardrobe in this they're so beautiful and i think one of the reasons so many probably hopefully young women as well see this movie young they're so glamorous these women just look glamorous constantly mm-hmm. i watch this you know we're all sort of still in our homes for the most part it's not exactly the most beautiful time of life right now and i was like oh man can you imagine putting on jewels and the makeup and these beautifully fitted dresses but what stood out to me in this rewatching too is they have very very feminine clothes and they're very fitted but nothing even their performance outfits is too revealing like they all very much take advantage of very specific feminine form but even the little rock dress which is very low cut it still has that like ice skater faux skin netting you know they've never most of they're the women they're both Jane and Marilyn are wearing the equivalent of turtleneck in half of their costumes Mm. they're very fitted but you know they don't have a ton of skin Jane shows some you know, she's got her athletic shorts on and a few things like that. But throughout, there's a, a various, this trade, if, if you're showing legs, you're not showing your top. They don't show cleavage almost ever. So I was just struck by how feminine the clothes are, how glamorous they are. But they also, they never feel lascivious or mm. that. And yeah, so the clothes would probably segue into an entire conversation we could have about the male gaze in this. <laughs> also how all of the men or so many of the men are more objectified i saw a lot more male flesh in this movie than i did female yes flesh. i mean I the, uh, it. yeah it, it, the ain't there anyone here for love dance i mean those male olympians they look like they're naked and that is obviously very much by design and so it's interesting that you have you know jane russell in this pantsuit and you have all these men in just these skimpy shorts that look like they are completely naked just that black ring around the bottom of their shorts is the only thing to let you know that they're actually just wearing skin colored shorts but they're topless and you see a lot of muscles and and all the musical numbers were directed by Jack Cole so maybe that was some of his influence. To go back to Dre's point about the fashion what I I think really the only costume that people know that wasn't I don't know the rumor I heard was that it was not allowed to be shown the front of is the gold dress there's photos of Marilyn in that gold um, dress with the plunging neckline you can only see the back of it I think in the film where she's uh, dancing and I'd heard a story that it was too risque for the front to be shown Alicia I don't know if that's 
a true statement or not. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I have seen those pictures of the front and it is a little bit more sexy than the other costumes. But I also love that shot of her from behind because you just see her backside wiggling. And again, it's it's very sexual, but it's also very classy as well. And I always think when she's doing that, that she looks like a snake. You know, later on, she talks about being a snake with Piggy. And I always think she looks like she is just like slithering over him and, and she's about to devour him whole. <laughs> One and just two two pigs fighting under a blanket. Yeah. <laughs> well, to go to the to the musical moments, I think what first off, this is probably one of the best move, uses of Technicolor that you can find. I mean, you can watch it on the crappiest TV you have, and it just it dazzles, which makes it even better if you can watch it on a big screen or in like Super HD or whatever the kids are watching their their movies on now. But the musical numbers, I think, are just so unlike a lot of the musicals before. And again, I urge everybody to read Janine Basinger's incredibly comprehensive book on the the movie musical. But, you know, musical numbers had always kind of had to have a reason for existing or not a reason for existing, you know, characters kind of bursting into song. But what I appreciate about this movie is that Lorelai and Dorothy are showgirls and you have those moments where they are performing in a performance setting, but then there are also moments where it feels like this dreamlike othering of the musical number. You know, we can talk about Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend in a second, but the Ain't There Anyone Here for Love number, just it feels like that old school song in my heart type of moment where she has to sing about it. And yet at the same time, because it's ticklish business and I got to bring it up, the homoeroticism of that number is just off the charts that it almost feels like Dorothy is kind of singing a song about barking up the wrong tree. You know, she's kind of like, why is nobody trying to hit on me? Because they might not actually be interested in you. And I think that that adds another layer of fun, like coding to the movie that is enjoyable. You know, if you're of that group, you might notice it more than if you aren't. You know, you can enjoy it as a completely hetero, cisgender type of thing. But if you are, you know, I'd be interested to see about 1950s audiences who were part of the queer community, like how they responded to that. Did that add another layer of humor? Because I I think it's just it's one of those moments that does take the musical genre and kind of tilts it a little bit and makes you think about it in a different way. Yes, I think so. And, you know, there's moments in that number where you have the two men wrestling each other and it is very suggestive when you look at it and very much like a, a tongue-in-cheek wink to the camera. And interesting that the censorship board had no issues with <laughs> that number of and had not. no issues with, that, uh, <laughs> with those shorts, you know, but they did take issue with several other pieces of dialogue in the film. Uh, of course, you know, the censorship was always much more harsh in terms of women's sexuality and you could get away with some coded things. But it's so funny to watch that scene and I love to notice the little moments and I think I might have even mentioned this in the intro, but there's a moment when all the men are lined up and they all have their butts in the air and they're sort of doing this bobbing moment and there's one guy that doesn't bob <laughs> when everyone else bobs and I always notice him. I'm always looking at, oh, there's that guy screwing up again. And then, of course, right at the end when they die 
dive over Jane Russell and tip her into the water and that wasn't supposed to happen and they reshot that scene but they ended up using that moment as she said Jane Russell she said she looked like a drowned rat when she came out of the water but she kept on going the trooper that she was and I love that they kept that moment in the film. Those are the two parts that I noticed too, whenever I watched that scene. And and I think in addition to that, really the romance in this film is so secondary to me. And I feel like you could even use that to kind of boost your argument as far as homoeroticism goes and just the straight relationships kind of take a backseat. And I don't know, like Marilyn's relationship with Gus, you don't really think about how in love with each other they may or may not be. And the whole relationship of Dorothy with Shaw, wait, no, not Shaw. Annie Malone. Right, right, of course. I, I keep thinking of the actor's name, but anyway. So that whole relationship isn't even really about their romance either. I mean, they definitely show the romance, but what we're really paying attention to is that he's keeping tabs on them. So neither of the main relationships are focused on the romantic aspect and our eyes are kind of darted towards different areas unlike so many movies of this time like just comparing it to like the romantic melodramas like Magnificent Obsession where that's all you see and all you focus on I think that's kind of a testament to how this film is different too. Yeah and right at the end I mean I don't want to give too much away but the the final shot of this is the two women looking at each other and giving each other a smile and and the camera pans in and you don't see the men to either side of them. I think that's really interesting. Oh, I could, I, if we're talking about looking at a homoerotic viewpoint of this, <laughs> Lorelai and Dorothy are the relationship. And the idea too that both of the men that they're partnered with are kind of neutered and not super, like I find that other than the two women together, the most chemistry generated in all of this is Lorelai and Spofford, the six-year-old little rich boy, who is my favorite comic relief in almost anything. I can't even handle that kid talking about animal magnetism. <laughs> and there's a whole, like, the whole physical comedy moment when Lorelai's half stuck through a porthole and puts a blanket up and he, like, holds his hand. I love it. But she has, like, more chemistry with Spofford there's more not in a gross way he's a child but it's sparky whereas Gus her you know millionaire fiance I liked that neither he nor Malone have meathead possessive qualities there are men who respect the power dynamics with these two women which is that the women have the power and they're not trying to like you know browbeat them or caveman them and and I'm like oh this is ideal and this is also what I would want for these two women if these two women can't have each other and all the wealth in the world that they deserve, sure, yeah, why not these guys? I did always find the weakest link in this is I think there there was a possibility to have a little more of a swoon with Malone and Dorothy with the idea of, you know, you see them falling for each other on this cruise ship and him being enamored with this mistaken belief he had originally that she was also a gold digger and she's instead just rolls her eyes when he starts to pretend to have money. And of course that would intrigue him. So there was a little more possibility than I felt was ever 
really earned with the with those two in particular. But I love Lorelai and Gus's whole dynamic, and believe they had a very nice life together. Yeah, exactly. It's you don't get the the sense that they have much sexual chemistry. I mean, you see how Gus has that reaction to her when she just gives him this quick kiss on the lips, and Dorothy says, "You know, what do you do? You have Novocaine in your lipstick?" Because he's just like, "Whoa," you know. But what I like about these relationships is that it's that again, it's the women that are driving the relationships. Like the women have to tell the men, "This is what we want from you." You know, at the towards the end, Dorothy. As playing Lorelai has to say, you know, she Dorothy is in love with you, someone, and just give him a real hint before he gets it and before he realizes, oh, okay, I should give up this case and and fall in love and and get married to Dorothy. But the women have to really tell them, have to bat them over the heads and say, come on, guys, like keep up with us. When I want to talk about Jane Russell a little bit because I think she's also just as, you know, this is often considered a Marilyn movie, but it's just as much her Jane's movie as it is Marilyn's. And I think you can't have one of them without the other. The success of the movie is on their their unity together. And Jane Russell is an actress that I've come to appreciate a lot this year especially after TCM did the whole star of the month for for Jane and showed a lot of movies that I ended up watching. But she did this the same year as she did The French Line, which I haven't forgotten Alicia's intro to The French Line talking about the use of 3D. Alicia, what was the tagline for The French Line in 3D? Oh, I can't remember, but it was was something something, like, poke your eyes out. Yeah, it was pretty much about (laughs) Jane Russell's bosoms and being in 3D. It was was weird. Um, And that is one bizarre movie. But I think that even even where Marilyn was often failed from getting great roles because of her looks, Jane kind of fell into the same boat she was Howard Hughes's ideal definition of a woman even though she didn't date him and she kind of got stymied by her RKO contract into doing a lot of movies that she didn't necessarily like and I think that this movie gives her a really good opportunity to show that tough exterior but how that can be a front and I did not get to see the sequel Gentleman Mary Brunettes um, so I don't I don't know I've heard it's not as good as this and how can you hit have lightning hit twice with something like this film but especially at the end when she's allowed to be in that Marilyn disguise and do the gentleman preferable or the the um Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend number in the courtroom and get that moment of just humor and utter chicanery. Like, I think that she has such a brilliant comedic sense of self to her that does not get discussed enough. Yeah, I love when she's being dragged away after doing that performance and she just goes, Yahoo! (laughs) And Jane had such a strength about her that I think a lot of movies and particularly those that Howard Hughes wanted to do, they didn't know how to complement that or how to bring that out in her because she was someone who could really take control of the screen. And at the time, she was a bigger star than Marilyn Monroe. So here she has top billing and she was borrowed from RKO in part for a bit of insurance because Marilyn Monroe wasn't uh, as big a box office draw so that they wanted to have a star name with Marilyn Monroe. And so it's interesting now that we think about Jennifer Furblons as being Marilyn's movie because after this, she became very famous. But Jane Russell, I think also, like you said, in a similar way to Marilyn Monroe, never got 
quite the chance to show what she was made of, to show her full breadth of, of talent. She was often put into these skimpy costumes, as you see in the French line, and she made the most of, of what she had, but I would have loved to see her in a really strong role and one that made full use of her comedic timing. I definitely agree. I think really for me in watching Jane Russell's work without Marilyn, to me, it's just the studio that she was in and her relationship with Howard Hughes. I think being with RKO definitely stifled her talent and the kind of vehicles that he wanted to put her into. Like even Marilyn, as many people who didn't take her seriously as there were, she still got the chance to act because she was with 20th Century Fox. She she got the chance to act with her own production company and like The Prince and the Showgirl, which is a super strong performance of hers and Let's Make Love and so many other amazing acting performances where Jane Russell got the fuzzy pink nightgown and underwater and really exploitative kind of films that just focused on her looks and brought in the money, where at least there were some other layers to Marilyn's work. Yeah, I mean, you look at right from the beginning of Jane's career with The Outlaw and how that was promoted and it was very much about her assets and Howard Hughes creating this bra for her that she refused to wear. I mean, it was always about her body and she had so much more to her than that. And I do want to bring up, Drea brought up George... Foghorn Winslow as Fawford. He is my favorite actor. I'm just gonna say it, even though he was like six, he's my favorite actor of all time. <laughs> he's hilarious. I saw him, I think for the first time in Monkey Business, which if you've not seen, that's another Marilyn movie. Very different film, also directed by Howard Hawks, but he plays a very similar character in being an adult sounding person in a child's body um, who makes Cary Grant do a Native American war dance. It is hilarious. And I quote it a lot, but not nearly with the same flair because my voice is way too high. But I think what makes him stand out from other cutesy characters that you usually have in some of these movies, like there's always a cute child that shows up, is that there are so many questions about him. Like, why is he traveling alone? What's his business? You know, what what is his backstory that he's this little tiny heir to something? I mean, he's got a valet, so he must have some money. <laughs> you know, I want to know about him. And at the same time, he doesn't really bat an eye to any of the things that happen to him. He's placed next to two of the most beautiful women in the world. And he's just like, oh, I don't intend to miss a meal. And you're like, is he hitting on her? Or is he just like... I'm okay with this. Like, this is really cool to me. You know, the the porthole sequence that, that Drea brought up, the fact that he's the one that thinks to stick out his hand as Marilyn's hand. And, you know, he has that great moment where, where Charles Coburn's like caressing his hand and goes to kiss it. And you just hear, stop that. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's hilarious. And he has such a small, many people would say insignificant part of the film. And yet he steals, he walks away with so many great moments. And then I think went on to, you know, become a postal worker for the rest of his life. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, once he lost that signature voice that he had, once he hit puberty, I think at around 12, his career was over. And he had that really short career, but I think in every film that he was in, he stole the show because he had such an unusual voice and a very different style of delivery, this very flat, 
style that, you know, spoke to him knowing more than a little child should, you know, the scene where he sits down at the table, it seems like he knows exactly what's going on and he knows how to handle it. I love the porthole scene that you mentioned. I love that he's just walking alone around the ship and then late at night and then sees her and goes to help her. And, and he it was just so interesting. I remember seeing him in Room for One More and of course, Monkey Business and Cary Grant was the one who brought him into the film business because he heard him on radio and thought that his voice was hilarious. I agree. He's the best actor. The, I, I think he's such a shining light in this, obviously. But thinking of the porthole scene and then the scene at the end where Jane Russell goes in character as Marilyn's Lorelei, you know, like three characters in one. <laughs> it, it made me think as well that this is a film where it is so nicely measured out that both of the women get chances to shine in different ways. To me, those two moments, the portal scene and the courtroom scene, are each of them get like this comedic set piece where they get to show some like comedy chops. And then, you know, when Jane has her big anyone here for love, her whole solo, and it goes the whole the whole movie, you don't really think about how Marilyn didn't have a solo until she finally does. She doesn't get diamonds to um, our girl's best friend until, you know, near the very end. And at that point, it occurred to me, of like, oh, how nicely balanced this is, that both of them get chances to shine together. We get to see them perform, and they're a great duo. We get to see time with the the romances in their life they each get these comedic they each get a solo moment and it's another way where you're like oh this makes sense they're friends because even this film is treating them as equals and giving them equal opportunities to shine and i think that's another way that you know films that are either two-handers or that are trying to show these partnerships don't always take that into account and this one does really nicely just the the equality across the board in terms of performance opportunities and taking advantage of a a range of skills. Yeah, and before we um, wrap up, it'd be great to talk about Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend because that yes. has become such an iconic number that you you even saw it in um, the Harley Quinn movie, yes. Birds of Prey, at the beginning of the year. Seems like a long time ago. And it's become so such a, a unique set piece that even people who've never seen the film know the, the song and know exactly that outfit. It's funny that you, uh, we were talking about the revealing costumes and the not revealing costumes because initially for that scene, Marilyn's costume was extremely revealing. It was basically just black fishnet kind of circusy, very bedazzled outfit. And they were like, no, that's too revealing. We can't do it. So then they give her this iconic pink satin gown. And I feel like so many people have tried to redo that and they just can't you know, do it justice, which is funny because that gown was thrown together like so quickly. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, if this movie couldn't be feminine enough, it brings a whole other level of femininity. Yeah, I think we'd be lost okay. without adding the Madonna of it as well. Yeah, the, the Madonna. I was gonna say, yeah. We, um, I was course. at a birthday party for a 13-year-old this weekend, an outdoor, like separated movie watching 
where of course we watch 13 going on 30, which is what 13 year olds want to see. They can't wait to be 30. But we played 80s music videos at the end. Material Girl came up and I informed her she has to see Gentlemen Prefer Blondes to fully appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, that scene as well is, is another sort of uh, tongue in cheek moment. You, you get that Marilyn is in on the joke. You get that Lorelai is doing this performance to get to Gus. I love when she says, I don't mean rhinestones and she chucks it at him. I also love that George Chakiris is in the chorus as one of the dancers. And of course, he would go on to win an Oscar for West Side Story. And it's so beautifully choreographed, that whole number. And it was one that Marilyn Monroe worked really hard on and she sung and danced for all of the film. The only part she didn't sing was the no, 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 no at the start of that song. Yeah. So I think that that's a good segue into wrapping things up. That scene is so iconic and it makes the movie the iconic, I'd say, masterpiece that I think it is. You that's know, a fair I, statement. <laughs> I think Gentlemen Prefer Blonde is the perfect movie. I think it's entertaining. You can watch it any time and it just, it lifts you up. It's a great balm for the soul to use something, you know, really, really trite. But I, I love it so much. Sam, final thoughts. What do you say about Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? The more that, or the longer we have this conversation and the more that I think about it, I think I really didn't have like the one, I had the 99% appreciation for this film, but what brought me to the 100 was seeing it last year at the fest. I think this is really one of those films that's such a treat to see with an audience because it's just so fun. And we were talking about all the comedic moments, like the scene with Henry Spofford III. I have never laughed at this film as much as I did seeing it with the audience that appreciated it so much. And and like you said, I mean, you really just hit the nail on the head. It's a perfect film. It, the Technicolor, it's a masterpiece. It really brings out both Jane and Marilyn and it, the complexity of it, I think, is just fantastic with all the different relationships. And there's really, what, what can you say bad about Gentlemen for Blondes, really? I know. I mean, I, uh, hey. I even changed my last name, you know, that, to fit with the movie. So I was born Alicia Holdsworth. And after reading so many autobiographies and biographies of Hollywood stars, I wanted to make my own transformation and have my own stage name for, I don't know what I was planning for, but <laughs> I thought once I finish school, I'm going to change my name to something glamorous. And because I love this movie so much and also love Showgirls, I decided I'm Malone. I thought it sounded sort of like Marilyn Monroe, but um, it also fit with my first name. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That is so cool. Drea, what are your overall thoughts on Gentlemen for Blondes? Um, oh, it's okay. I'm just kidding. It's wonderful. Yeah. I love this movie. It is a time, Alicia mentioned at the very beginning, that this is a great time that it's almost necessary to be seeking out movies that make us feel good. And I've been so actively revisiting things that I know will be a balm to the soul, that will just take me somewhere lovely and give me comedy and a little romance and some fun. And the twinkle in this, the positive female elements, the glamour, I love it. It's, it's just, it makes me so happy to watch it every single time time. And Alicia? Absolutely. It, it makes me happy every time I watch it. And Drea, you said at the beginning something that's very true, which is every time you see it, it reveals more to you, especially as you grow older and you have more of an understanding of some of the nuances and complexities, particularly around the female friendship 
and the way that they need to survive in this patriotic world. So I think that it's a movie that not only gives me comfort and gives me nostalgia and makes me think about growing up and seeing it for the first time and learning all the dances with my sister Yvette and putting our performance for anyone who was unfortunate enough to walk into our living room. It also is a movie that keeps revealing itself to me every time I see it. And and that I think is a mark of, of a brilliant film. Well, listeners, let us know your thoughts on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Uh, Marilyn Monroe, Jane Russell, you can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on our next post-100 episodes. Uh, Alicia, thank you so much for sitting down and talking about this fantastic movie, being our guest of honor for our 100th episode. This is going to go up in December, so feel free to plug anything around that time. But where can fans find you online read your books, see you on TCM, all of that. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be a guest of honor. And anytime I get to talk about gentlemen for blondes with three intelligent, beautiful ladies, it just makes my day. Uh, you can find me online at Alicia Malone. And also you can find my book there on Amazon. Or if you want to support independent booksellers, then it's uh, Backwards and in Heels and The Female Gaze. And I'm currently writing book number three. So that'll be out sometime next year. <laughs> can we get a hint on what book number three is about? Yeah, Again, it's about women in film. This time I'm going to look at female characters and I'm trying to weave in more of my personal story. So Gentlemen Fur Blondes will definitely be making a feature in my book as a film that had a profound effect on me in terms of the portrayal of women on film. Awesome. Exciting. Yay. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. It's actually our, our last episode of the year. So it seems pretty fitting that we're ending on 100 episodes. I don't know if I speak for Drea and Samantha when I say this, but I just want to thank everybody who has supported the show for over 100 episodes from the really weird days when it was just me and my microphone and my weirdly scripted intros that I know some people like, but they were a monster to have to do every week, you know, to to bringing on different guests, to bringing on Dre and Samantha, who've been some of the best co-hosts that I've gotten to work with. It's been such a treat. I'm excited for hopefully a hundred more episodes. You know, who knows what weird classic film rabbit holes we're going to go down in 2021. I hope we still have a country in 2021. I don't know. Ladies, do you guys want to add anything? This has been a treat, and it, it's always hard when you listen to podcasts because you're like, oh, they must all be best friends and roommates. But Kristen, Samantha, and I, I met them via Ticklish Business, and it's always wonderful, like, meeting new friends. The guests that we've had have been a real treat, and the people that Kristen's brought on on this road to 100, each time I'm like, oh, we get to talk to who? So, yes, I've highly enjoyed this. I hope the people listening have enjoyed this, and um, I can't wait to make you guys watch more obscure Japanese films in the future. I just want to say, honestly, yeah, this has been amazing. I really couldn't think of a better way to ring in 100 episodes, not only because we get to talk about such a female-centric film with such an amazing guest. We get to have all the ladies together talking about a really fluffy, romantic, escapist movie. And it was also the first movie that... Kristen and I got to see physically together and that's when we met. So that's just the coolest thing. (laughs) Uh, It brings everything full circle. And I just love that 
people out there want to hear us talk about films and want to hear us talk about the aspects of film that we love. And I'm just so blessed to get to do this. And I hope that we continue to do it for a long time. Yeah, well, we're taking the next uh, couple weeks off. We'll be back in January. But do not fret. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do that via our email, which again is ticklishbiz at gmail.com. We also have our individual Twitters. I am at journeys underscore film. Drea, where are you? I'm at the Drea Clark. And Samantha? At Classic Film Geek. And you can also reach out to us on our official Twitter, which is at ticklish underscore biz. We'll be posting updates and all sorts of stuff, even though we're on break. And if you want to support us and, and get access to stuff throughout the rest of the 2020s, you can do that over at our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash ticklish biz. We have all sorts of special stuff, including Not My Cat rolling all around. Uh, we have our whole bonus slate of shows, including based on a true podcast with William Bibiani and doubled features with Adam Kautzer. We also have a bunch of bonus shows that don't have either of those guys. We've done our Lolita double features, our Paul Newman retrospective. There's all sorts of stuff on there. So go out and and support if you can. We also give away buttons and we're going to do some more stuff in in 2021 that I think is going to be a a lot of fun. So yeah, we're going to close it out and say Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Hopefully 2021 is a lot better than 2020 was. So till next time. Cha cha cha.